You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. This is your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I'll be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that is happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags to the nation's iconic landscapes, even to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Access Fund. Since 1991, the Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support the Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org or by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everybody, welcome to episode two of the Climbing Advocate podcast. For those of you who have listened to episode one, I really hope you enjoyed it and want to thank you all for tuning in. I've gotten some great feedback thus far. It's been really exciting to hear back from all of you and super exciting to roll into episode two with all that wonderful feedback. So thank you very much. If you haven't heard the news, we are officially on iTunes now. So it makes it super easy to subscribe to the show, to leave a comment and review. That'd be greatly appreciated and help me out a lot. So please get on there and leave a comment or review. And the word about the show is really getting out there. It's really spreading. My, uh, my buddy that lives in Portland sent me a screenshot today of a newsletter that he subscribes to called Oregon Climbs, and they gave a shout out for the show. So it was really exciting to see the reach get out to the West Coast in the Pacific Northwest. So speaking of the Pacific Northwest, on this episode, I had a chance to speak with two gentlemen that reside in the Seattle area. One of them is Joe Sambatero, the National Access Director and the Northwest Regional Director of the Access Fund, and also Andy Fitz, a board member with the Washington Climbers Coalition. We chatted about a number of things. We started off with a brief history of the Washington Climbers Coalition, dating back to its origins and where it began and where it is now. It has grown a lot over the past 15 years or so. We also discussed their successful stewardship efforts across the state through their conservation initiative, their experiences with different land management entities, and the level of professionalism that these guys exude with the land agencies to get these projects done was very impressive because it can be quite a process to get the projects completed and requires a lot of patience and their persistence and patience has really paid off. We also talked about the advantages of corporate sponsorship, and then they they wrapped up the episode by offering a few pieces of of advice for other LCOs around the country. So if you're looking to start an LCO or you're already with an LCO, I'd highly recommend reaching out to these guys. They'd be a, a great resource for you all. So without giving too much more away, I would like to introduce the episode to you. So welcome to episode two of the Climbing Advocate podcast. I am joined here today with Joe from the Access Fund and Andy from the Washington Climbers Coalition. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And uh, the impetus for chatting with you guys first is I came across that Vimeo uh, stewardship video that you all put together uh, within the last year of the work that the WCC has done over the past year, past couple of years. 
And I was really inspired by the by the level of work and and the level of production of this video. And I was like, these these guys would be a really great um, coalition to speak to first. So if you guys want to introduce yourself real quick, uh, Andy, if you want to go ahead. Sure, Andy Fitz, Washington Climbers Coalition. Uh, how long have you been with the coalition, Andy? Uh, since 2004, I was one of the co-founders of the WCC. And before that, I was both on the board of the Access Fund and a regional coordinator for the Access Fund for about 10 years. Cool. All right, Joe. Hey, all. Uh, Joe Samutero, Northwest Regional Director for Access Fund and also Access Director. Andy, if you want to give us a good background on the WCC since you've been there since the beginning, since 04, if you give us a good background and, of course, the history of where you all started and where you are now. Sure. Uh, so in 2004, I had been volunteering for the Access Fund for about 10 years as a regional coordinator. So I was the person on the ground for Washington State, and um, we had some climbing issues come up in 2004 that uh, really made it clear to me that we needed a bigger local presence, uh, filling a void that the Access Fund couldn't just because it's a national organization and only can go so far, especially with the, the structure that it had. So um, there was an issue in particular we were working on where uh, there was a controversy over a, a long sport route that had been bolted in a wilderness area. And um, several of us were on the phone with Jason Keith, who was a former policy um, analyst for, for the Access Fund. And Jason, um, as we were talking about reaching out to the Forest Service, said, well, you guys should give yourself the name. How about the Washington Climbers Coalition? And we said, sure. So this is before we actually had an organization. We just held ourselves out as an organization. And it was amazing the legitimacy that that gave us. Um, so we ran with the idea. We formed a nonprofit corp corporation. We became uh, certified by the IRS as a, uh, a charitable nonprofit. And things ran from there, but really picked up steam around 2009 when Lower Town Wallet Index was um, posted with no trespassing signs and there was a threat that it was going to be quarried. Um, so we uh, jumped off on a, on a fundraising effort to buy the Lower Town Wall. And that effort really brought a lot of legitimacy to the organization. We were able to raise the money um, a lot through Joe's help uh, in, with the Access Fund and helping to um, secure an option agreement um, for the Lower Town Wall. And it brought a lot of attention to the organization, brought new uh, folks in as volunteers. And we've been picking up momentum since then. And you guys recently started the Washington Climbers Conservation Initiative, the WCCI. And that differs from the actual WCC itself, correct? Sure. Yeah, we've joked as a board that there are too many Cs uh, in, in both. <laughs> but uh, the idea was um, it was sort of a, a organic effort. And again, Joe had a, a big part in it. But the idea was to um, go out on the ground and start making a difference at CRAGS. Um, one of the things that I saw even back when I was volunteering for the Access Fund is what an amazing difference um, a stewardship project can make, both for climbers and being able to come out and contribute and, and see something for their effort and improve a climbing area, 
but also with land managers to see that you have a user group that's committed to um, being a good steward of, of the land that they're recreating on. So the idea was to take that to a, a broader scale than we had before, um, to have multiple weeks of effort, um, utilizing the conservation team from the Access Fund to provide some, some actual expertise and, uh, and make a difference at a number of areas around Washington to um, both you know, improve, uh, fix things that needed to be fixed, um, but also to raise our profile. What were those major things that needed to be fixed? So at different crags, um, erosion is a big issue. And the fact that you had a lot of recreational use that had never been planned for, um, you know, these are areas uh, occurring in nature that people then just descend on and start uh, developing social trails, trying to find the quickest way to a crag, um, impacting cliff base areas where uh, the vegetation is destroyed and then erosion sets in. So a lot of our work was trying to um, build sustainable rock structures, um, belay platforms, and better designed trails to get to the crags. Uh, also, yeah, at, at a bouldering uh, one of the bouldering areas, Gold Bar, um, working on um, especially better paths between the boulders. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I think climbers are kind of funny. They want to just take the fall line straight up the hill and the quickest quickest way to the crags instead of making you know, very sustainable switchbacks and taking a little longer to get there maybe. Um, I see that at my local crags. You know, you'd, I hike up to the crag and I look back down and it's like a straight shot down from where I started at the road. So I think it's, yeah, not just where you are, but I think I see that a lot of other areas. Um, Joe, can you speak about uh, REI and how they reached out to you all about a uh, grant opportunity? Definitely. Yeah, the Washington Climbing Conservation Initiative started out with REI reaching out to both Access Fund and Washington Climbers Coalition about how they can help out with local efforts here in the Northwest. And we were seeing some early success of professional trail crews working down in the Southeast in Chattanooga, in Utah, in areas like Joe's Valley and uh, Little Conwood Canyon. So we also wanted to take that model and, and bring together both the, the local climbing organization and the Access Fund to work with all of our local partners and some of our big funding partners like REI and, and their grant program to put together this larger initiative as Andy was describing. So it really came about in terms of uh, having that incredible opportunity presented to us from REI and then uh, moving forward with all the pieces of that puzzle. So everything from putting together the, the vision and identifying the key areas. We also reached out to the Washington climate community to ask them what they thought some hot spots were and some priority climbing areas were. Areas that were getting a lot more use, a lot more traffic, and, and therefore a lot more impact on the ground. So with that, we targeted four areas, index, gold bar boulders, tie tin, and exit 38 bar side. Uh, and we worked with both DNR uh, at gold bar and at the exit 38 bar side area, and with state parks at index, and also with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife at Titan. So these are all different Washington state public land agencies, and they all have slightly different missions. 
And I think that's what makes it really neat is because in these cases, uh, for example, gold bar boulders, it's part of our working timberland and that's the primary use. But we, we were able to show to land managers there that recreation can be compatible with that working forest landscape. And in other areas like Titan, where the focus is more on wildlife conservation, same thing. Thanks to Andy's long time relationship with the land managers out there, they really saw it as a win-win, both in terms of recreation and that resource out there. Uh, with Index, we're really fortunate, thanks to the purchase of the Lower Town Wall and our work with Washington State Parks. Uh, last year, we also finalize a index climbing wall um, climbing management plan and that uh, was the main process for approving a lot of the trail work that we get to work on year after year with state parks so it's, it's due to those great relationships that we're able to come to them with this resource and uh, put our efforts on the ground yeah that's that's really neat and incredible how you're able to work with several different agencies and entities that manage these lands on different in different capacities with different missions but be able to relate recreation and climbing to all of them that's ex exceptional work on your guys' uh, behalf was there any kind of pushback from the community did you see any kind of anyone up in arms about uh, improving any areas or putting areas on these land managers radar um, I know climbers can be, you know, they can be secretive maybe about their areas. Um, people think it's just fine the way it is. Did you have to navigate that from the public at all? Not in these four areas, but it, it does bring up a, a, a good point in that some areas you do have to take the right steps before you can actually go out there with volunteers, with a professional trail crew. For example, right. there is a bouldering area in Larrabee State Park, and uh, a couple years ago, we approached the state park about this climbing resource, and they asked the Washington Climbers Coalition to work through their trail planning process before further sharing that climbing area publicly online or in guidebooks or other resources. So that way we can get ahead of the impact before more and more climbers go to that area. And yep. so in year two of the Washington Climbing Conservation Initiative, so this year, 2018, we are doing a, a trail work assessment with some of the land managers out there. And that will hopefully tee up some actual trail work in 2019. So many of these projects take many years to put in place. And, uh, including, for example, the Liberty Bell Conservation Initiative, which was another big initiative by Access Fund, Washington Climbers Coalition, local Mazama Climbers, the Mountaineers, and the American Alpine Club. So sometimes it takes one to three years to get in a place where you can get land manager approval for trail work. And, right. and sometimes it, it, it comes about really easily. It just depends. And just to add to what Joe was saying, um, sometimes the issue isn't so much climber opposition, it's land manager education. I know that with the uh, the projects at the Titan that Joe mentioned, they're on an area that's managed for wildlife conservation. And the first step we had to go through was convincing the land manager that this is something that he should allow. We saw the need. Uh, we saw 
pardon me, erosion, erosion is an issue that needed to be addressed, but um, it took a day of, of going on an actual site tour with the land manager, mm. getting him comfortable that we could do the work, uh, that we weren't going to create a mess, and that there was also a need that could be addressed. Um, once he saw what we did, he was tremendously impressed. And this year, when it came time to ask for permission for phase two, he was um, enthusiastic about letting us go forward. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these trails were non-system trails. I'm speaking more like on the federal level with the like Forest Service. Um, and making a trail into a system trail, I know that it gives a lot of red tape and hoops to jump through. Uh, just speaking for the project that I worked on, the agency had to do uh, uh, basically a checklist under that to determine whether it needed to have further review. And we were able to um, get by without needing to do an environmental impact statement, say. I, I will say that it's, in my experience, been much more difficult to get land manager approval for projects on federal lands just because of NEPA. And I'm not trying to criticize right. NEPA. I think it has a great role. But uh, oftentimes, the uh, the folks, you know, having to carry out um, the requirements of it, uh, look at it as it's an expense and it's a time sink. And uh, it's often yep. easier just to say no than to go through that process. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, yeah, it's a it's a it's a time sink. It takes it's a burden. They, they they hear the word NEPA and they kind of roll their eyes like, oh, great, you know, this could be a whole a whole thing. So I've, I've heard of success stories where that can be kind of circumnavigated in a way or, or um, avoided, but still yeah, get this work done on a federal level. Yeah, it's worth mentioning the, the Liberty Bell Conservation Initiative again, in that we did work with the Forest Service two years ago. Uh, we provided the Access Fund Conservation Team pro bono to do a week of a trail assessment. So in this week we worked with local climbers and the forest service to flag out potential reroutes uh, look at areas to restore and areas to harden with with rock work and so because of our initial work there their biologists and other key members of their staff in the metal valley ranger district were able to go out and do some of the earlier scoping and from that they issued a categorical exclusion and this is yep. basically a part of the NEPA process without doing a full environmental statement or impact statement and uh, from that that was a, a memo allowing us to bring all the volunteers together all the partners and the trail crews to get the work done this past summer and also coming up next summer as well so uh, that's been successful in different areas across the country. It's been successful in areas like Yosemite National Park, uh, even in, in areas like Cathedral Peak, which is part of the wilderness system, uh, wilderness system up near Tuolumne. And uh, sometimes it also it depends on the scale of the project. Um, we've also been working with our partners in the Forest Service and Leavenworth Mountain Association to look into a larger scale project in some other heavily impacted areas uh, around Leavenworth, like Icicle Canyon and, and the Tumwater Canyon areas. And uh, since that's a, a matrix of access points, climber trails, boulders, cliffs, uh, that sort of simple 
categorical, categorical exclusion won't be enough. So we're working with them over the next few years to see what process will uh, allow us to do the good stewardship work that's needed out there. Yeah, would you have to think of some kind of innovative way that might not have ever been done before to navigate that getting past that CE? I think it's a matter of trying to work with the Forest Service to provide them as many resources as possible. So both in terms of assessment work, uh, laying the groundwork with, with, with GIS work and, and other tools to figure out the schedule. So they might recognize it as a priority, but not have the staff and, and financial resources that make it happen because there's a lot of competing priorities for recreation and, and land management for any right. uh, national forest or other unit. So it's, it's just a matter of working within their timeline and showing them that you could be both a resource and help advocate for, for that stewardship and that recreational need. Mm-hmm. It's a careful balance. Good, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, think, I think it's kind of a good segue uh, highlighting the conservation team, the Access Funds conservation team that works out in that area. The Access Fund Jeep conservation team started as a national team in 2011, and uh, they worked on smaller projects throughout the country. And it's a team of two okay. qualified uh, trail crew members. And uh, actually, our first team started off with a project at the lower index town wall of WCC in 2011. And we're still seeing that good work hold up year after year and probably decade after decade, right at the base of some of the most popular climbs. And through that, we are able to accomplish a lot of great projects with local climbing organizations. But then we also recognize the need that sometimes one weekend or one week isn't enough to really make a climbing area sustainable. So through local fundraising, grants, foundations, and sometimes public funding, we're able to partner with local climbing organizations to fundraise, then bring the team there to work for a longer period of time. And so that's how it's expanded. The conservation team West focuses on the Western states, everywhere from Arizona to Utah and California and Washington. And the East Coast team has done a lot of great work in the Southeast with funding down there. And of course, all the way up to New Hampshire, places like Cathedral and Whitehorse. Mm-hmm. So those two teams are more fee for service, just like any other professional trail crew that a land manager or a nonprofit might hire. And um, it, it's, it's really that nexus of having both that team that can go around the country to really bring the climbing community together in some, in some great, important weekend events and these two professional trail crews that could really focus in and not just work with volunteers on busy weekends, but, but do some of the hard work throughout the week to, to make our areas more sustainable. Yeah. Uh, do they do any of that GIS work or are they just pretty much just boots on the ground, swinging the tools? Both. Both. Yeah. The, their, their work is critical. And like, for example, at Larrabee state park, they'll go out and do an assessment this year for hopefully approving Washington Climbing Conservation Initiative work in, in its third year next year. So it's, uh, gotcha. it's, it's 
it's about tiering everything and making sure you you're providing their land managers the, the right resources to make the work happen. Right. Those resources include volunteers, of course. How have you guys gone about uh, recruiting volunteers and getting more boots on the ground and more hands in the dirt uh, working on these trails and being stewards of the, of the land? Andy, can you speak to that? Sure. Um, you know, a lot of it these days has been through social media, through uh, mm-hmm. Facebook group messages, um, through our own social media from the Washington Climate Coalition, um, through access fund alerts, and um, and then through direct events and posters. But um, I would say that that most of the most of the return, I suppose, on the outreach effort is coming through social media. I was hoping to go back and add an editorial to what Joe was just talking about with the conservation team. So sure. uh, when I first got, got involved with the Access Fund, it had a uh, a guy under contract to do sort of the same thing, go around the country and, and help with actual stewardship events, trail building. And um, at a certain point uh, in the late 90s, the Access Fund went away from that model and focused more on advocacy in Washington, D.C., which, um, you know, the thinking was that would gain some some better results. And in my mind, I think that um, the best outreach is on the local level actually showing work. And I'm so happy that the conservation team is doing what it's doing. I think that it allows climbers to see a direct impact from um, volunteering for a local or a national organization. And I think it builds a relationship with land managers that you don't build otherwise. You see something concrete um, that's going to last for years and um, and pay benefits for years. That I working on a policy level, and I'm not saying that isn't important to do also, but um, I think that the the focus with the conservation team has been huge, and and um, especially for the WCC has allowed us to say we actually do something. In 2017, the Washington Climbing Conservation Initiative engaged 290 volunteers and 2,320 volunteer hours. And that speaks to the reach of Washington Climbers Coalition and our community in terms of getting the word out, getting out there, and all the partners, whether it's the local gyms like SBP, Vertif World, uh, and local organizations like Mountaineers and, and the local chapters of the American Alpine Club. It was a big team effort in terms of getting volunteers out there, whether mm-hmm. uh, it's from some of our local industry partners or it's new climbers reaching out and figuring out how they can get involved in climbing and also give back. So uh, it's been a big success. And so we're trying to repeat that again in 2018 this year, and, and we're off to a good start. Awesome. That's super encouraging. That's that's one thing I find really interesting uh, is this notion of the term uh, civic recreation, as I like to put it. That's not my term. I did uh, steal that from from, uh, some, from somebody else, but I think it captures that really well of climbers, bikers, skiers, whatever user group it is, not just being a user, but being a good steward of the land as well and contributing their time to get back to the places they use instead of just using them. Um, and I see in some areas that bridge um, existing and trying to bridge that gap between using and stewarding, I think um, can be perpetuated and, and spread throughout the country to connect more folks to, the, to their areas. Well, we already 
kind of spoke about this uh, collaborative conservation between all these partners and highlighted REI and the Mountaineers. Um, who's got to have some significant advantages working with corporate sponsorship, um, having REI on board and then reaching out to you was, I mean, that's huge instead of the other way around. Um, you also hosted an event at, uh, at one of the local REIs for outreach purposes. Is that right? There's like a concert, I think. Yeah, last year there was a concert. And also again, this year, just to get the word out and really show the community of, of people who, who uh, visit REI stores and see their, see their support in action in, in terms of what work REI local stores are supporting. So they can go out and um, visit with Washington Climbers Coalition and some other nonprofits and get involved that way. So that's been really important, mm -hmm. not just to, you know, to help climbers with stewardship, but show the broader outdoor recreation community that uh, we're all working together to, to take care of the places we go out and recreate in. And yep. another great story uh, the last few years has been one of our longstanding partnerships with Thermarest. Their headquarters are here in Seattle, and every year they send 10 to 15 staff out to join the Access Fund Conservation Team and, and WCC with a trail day during the week. So obviously not everyone can take time off from work to help the, with the stewardship during the week, but uh, this is a great way for, for some of our partners to get some of that training, uh, get their staff out on a special volunteer day and really see what their sponsorship and work is supporting. And I'd, I'd like to speak to the importance of that first REI grant. Um, the WCC is an all-volunteer organization. Uh, we have 14 board members now, I think. Um, and then we have other folks who, who also volunteer to help out on, on certain projects. But we don't have the capacity, or at least we didn't, to raise the funds to be able to have the conservation team come and spend 12 weeks in Washington. And I think if we had set out to try to fundraise for that, we probably wouldn't have gotten a real great response just for the idea. Um, so getting that grant to allow us to do that the first time around last year really set the stage for us to be able to fundraise. We had something to show for it. And um, yep. it was just crucial seed money to get the whole thing rolling. Are there any state programs that offer grants for advocacy or stewardship work? Um, there are. It's a comp it, yeah, it's a competitive process, and um, I think that that's something that definitely we're going to look to take better advantage of in the future. Um, you know, we have to select the project right, and we're competing often against um, cities that are looking for park improvements and and other state agencies looking for grants as well. So. Sure. Um, I think we need to, it's a definitely competitive situation. So um, we have to tailor the project and the proposal for just the right time and, and the right scope. Mm -hmm. Here in Washington, it's called the Washington uh, Wildlife and Recreation Program. And Colorado has a similar program with Greater Outdoors. So yeah, go, go. Every state, every state is different. And so definitely encourage local climbing organizations to look into those options and figure out what type of project would be the best fit for each type of category and uh, it's something to keep on your radar and explore.
Yeah, it's huge. I mean, there's, it'd be silly not to take advantage of it. Um, yeah, like you, like you mentioned, Joe, uh, Greater Outdoors Colorado, or otherwise known as GOCO, is funded by the state lottery. And it that's what it's all about, is providing a good amount of money uh, in the form of grants to all kinds of organizations. I work for my local land trust in, in Crested Butte, Colorado, and we apply for grants from them to work on some local projects in a small ski town, you know, in Southwest Colorado. I mean, they, they can give out funds to a lot of different um, projects and organizations. So I would echo what you just said and, and say that uh, if you're an LCO somewhere else, look into your state opportunities for, for grant funding. It's, it's huge. Very, very helpful. Those other smaller local shops um, and partners that you had on board, was that like REI? Did they reach out to you or were you reaching out to them? Um, I know there's a lot of local climate organizations that work in small areas that might not have corporate sponsorship opportunities such as REI. We reached out to a lot of our community partners and many of them have been supporting WCC in our work for, for many years. So it was pretty easy for us to go to them and say, hey, we have this great initiative and uh, we have the funding, but we really could use some more support with getting the word out to your community. And if you're interested, coming out and having your own special day with the conservation team and doing some trail work. So it was a, it was a combination effort, but mostly WCC and Access Fund reaching out to our partners and mm -hmm. uh, giving them the opportunity. Do you have to frame it in a way like, this is what's in it for you or are they just kind of just like, okay, sweet. Like that we, we are in this community, we provide outdoor gear or whatever kind of store it is to the folks in this community. We should be a part of this. I always think there's a lot of things going on and, and uh, you want to be as flexible as possible when you're reaching out to them with options and uh, see if it will fit. And sometimes uh, different groups are really busy and it doesn't work out and you just make sure that you keep reaching out and find something that will. So mm -hmm. I would say it's it's kind of a hit and miss sometimes in terms of whether you'll find a day and opportunity to, to make it happen. And sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You need to always be on your outreach and, and stay on it because uh, it could slip through the cracks, especially when you're sending emails and, and not seeing someone face to face. So the last partnership, and the major one that you had, was with the actual land managers, land agencies um, for all these areas, whether it be federal or state. I personally think that the management of lands uh, might be evolving and changing, and will continue to look that way with these agencies being understaffed, underfunded. They're going to think. I think they're going to rely heavier and heavier on groups on LCOs and other advocacy groups, whether that be climbers, bikers, skiers, motor, the motorized community. Um, what does the future do you guys think that looks like uh, working with um, land agencies and collaborating, assisting them? So I think that you're right. I think that the trajectory is for land managers to be understaffed and, uh, and under budgeted. And that is a double-edged sword for volunteers. Um, you know, you would it creates a, a void for us to fill and um, and help out. But um, there's also work that goes with having volunteers fill in and help out. 
Um, and sometimes the land manager is resistant to the amount of effort it's going to take to oversee a project or make sure it's done the right way. So um, I think it's important to start with um, something that's achievable to show that you can um, get a result and to build credibility. Uh, once you've gotten that credibility, you can continue to grow on it and get um, larger in your scope. So um, part of what I've, I've tried to do with land managers is to build a um, strong relationship of trust where they know exactly what we're going to do. We don't go outside those bounds and um, they can become comfortable with working with me and, and the Washington Climbers Coalition and the Access Fund. So um, sometimes it can be a, a, a long process, um, but you have to look at it um, in the long term to, to get to the place where you're truly a partner to the land manager as opposed to a headache. Right, right. You want to ask what we can do, what can we do for you instead of like walking into their offices and say, and be like, okay, this is what we have in mind. We want to do this, this, and this. Um, would you err on the side of, you know, approaching it, um, asking what you can do for them, right? Absolutely. And where I've seen climbers um, create negative relationships with land managers is where they go in with this um, expectation men mentality that the, you know, mm -hmm. I pay taxes, you're working for me. And, um, you know, while I guess that's true in the broader sense, um, the, the, you have to understand the amount of pressure that the land managers are under from not just user groups, but um, their own organizations. And the yep. more you can do to, to sort of solve a headache for them and make it easy for them to work with you, then, then the better. And to add to that, uh, a fair amount of patience is required. Sometimes these processes take many years and uh, it's good to be persistent, but it's also really good to build that trust and as Andy was saying, and, and work with them in their process. Because uh, it's never gonna happen as quickly as you want it to. And it's mm -hmm. always more complicated than you think it was initially. So patience will help a lot, especially when you're putting in the long hours and, and uh, trying to do some good work. Yeah, of course. Awesome, guys. Well, I kind of want to wrap this up. Um, I would like to close each of these episodes with some kind of advice for your local community or other communities, advice for other LCOs. Um, what kind of what are the best events that someone can put on to engage their community um, do you need to start out with just a simple fun event just to gather the community or should you just go outright and be like okay we got this project we can get this thing done go do the project um, i guess it might depend but uh, either one of you can speak on that um so i'll start i i think it's important to plan something um, and i underscore planning because if folks show up and, and the, the project organizers are trying to figure out what the project is in real time, people aren't gonna have a good experience. So the more work right. you do on the front end, um, the happier people are gonna be. And I think for the volunteers, they're looking for a good experience. Um, they wanna have fun and they wanna have something that they can show for their effort at the end of the day, where they come back in you know a month or a year and they can see and say to their climbing partner, hey, I helped build that retaining wall or I helped build that trail. So 
having a project where you can see concrete results, I think, is good for the volunteers. Um, yeah, perfect. But I do think it's it, it's good to start off small in scope so that you could you have something achievable and um, mm -hmm. and you know you can get it done. Do you uh, you guys experienced any volunteer like turnover? Do you see anyone getting uh, burnt out? Or if you haven't seen that personally, I'm sure you've heard of that before. Um, so to retain volunteers, any any advice there? I mean, you kind of just spoke on it, um, Andy, a little bit, but um, good strategies to keep that volunteer uh, retainment? Yeah, I think it, there's definitely a balance to be struck. I've probably pushed the line too far on some projects where I've had people as, as slaves moving rocks all day. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it's important for people to have fun and, uh, and to work hard enough where they feel they've done something, that they've actually contributed, but not so hard that they go home and, you know, can't climb for the next month because they've hurt their elbow <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, and then on the, on, the, on the organizer's side, I've seen people burn out by trying to do too much too soon. I mean, you can, mm -hmm. you can get as much out of volunteering as you put into it, and I've seen people who just go full hog and then burn out totally because they, uh, they don't see other people putting in the same effort, and then they get discouraged or they don't have the time anymore. I think it's important to have a sense of balance even as a, as a volunteer organizer to not take on more than you can handle. That makes perfect sense. Uh, well, thanks, guys. That's um, I think that's all I got for today. I really appreciate both of your input and spending time on the on the podcast today. This is great, and I uh, hope to continue these kind of conversations into the future. And I'll get up to uh, get up to the Pacific Northwest, hopefully sooner than later, and we can hopefully rope up for some pitches. Sounds great. Sounds Thank good. you, Peter. All right, guys. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. Episode two in the books. My conversation with Joe and Andy from Washington State. A couple of guys that are getting things done and getting things done well. Again, it was super impressive to see the level of professionalism and knowledge that they have and were able to share with all of you. We talked about several different things throughout the conversation, but the one common denominator that I heard between just about every one of those topics was the importance of establishing that strong relationship with your land manager and building that level of trust that climbers are going to go in to their area and take care of it and not create that mess that Andy had mentioned. So the point I really want to drive home here today is to approach your land manager strategically, approach them asking what you can do for them, not what they can do for you. That'd be the best approach for everyone to take if you really want to get your projects taken care of. So with that, I am signing off. I hope to uh, have you all join in here in the next few weeks for episode three. That'll be out soon. So between now and then, take care of yourself and uh, we'll see you next time.